Hello, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm Wolf Tyvey, Editor-in-Chief. I'm with Ash Milton, as usual. Hey, everyone. So this week, I want to talk about the moral logic of industrial progress. So we have some thoughts coming together in this area, and I wanted to polish this off. I'm writing something for the next edition of Palladium Magazine in print. So I wanted to polish off some thoughts here and 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 just develop this idea. So so hear me out. I think it, so so the moral logic of industrial progress you probably think something like oh yeah, you know, we're all getting richer, everyone's living longer, like disease is down, it's so great, like industrial progress is some kind of moral imperative blah blah blah. I actually mean it the other way around. I think that the thing that's actually happening with industrial progress or with the industrial revolution in general and and with with when industrial progress is advancing in society i think there's something happening there that's actually a moral project in the sense of a transformation in how we view the world how we view ourselves how we view what's important and the better we become as people the more virtue we have the more it of a particular type of virtue the more it feeds into the the wealth so let me start at the beginning so what's 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 industry um industry is this process or it's this it's the use of technology and organization the use of technology and large-scale organization in basically the purposeful production of of wealth and other things so you know a factory is the kind of paradigmatic example basically you have an organized group of people working in this technologized work context that's very organized it's organized not just uh incidentally but there's someone sitting there this manager looking at the thing thinking how can we improve this how do we how do we work on this how do we make this better can should we internalize that that supplier should we you know outsource that piece should we change this around like shorten shorten that you know like take a day off and just improve the workspace make things flow better you know coming they come up with new philosophies like uh you know just in time or just continuous improvement or shortening the amount of work you do but basically you have this machine this overarching machine uh, i think i think a sort of semi-accepted term for this is a socio-technical system and it's it's intensively using both social organization and technology and it's using them within an overarching productive machine so that's that's industry so what is moral what was sorry what is industrial progress industrial progress is progress in our ability to do that as a society overall so it's more more production more technology more efficiency better organized sort of larger scale that kind of thing so you know these seem fairly mundane i think people usually approach them as you know it's this thing like well yeah you know we need we need wealth to feed people and like defend ourselves i think you know obviously that's part of it but i think i think there's a bunch of stuff that's missed so another so about about how this actually happens how does an industrial society work at scale you have it's not just happening within one factory obviously it's happening within a whole ecosystem of factories they're all supplying or not all of them but they're supplying each other there's all these synergies with with the development of technical culture of you know little ecosystems of industry where it's possible to do things 
where you have training, where you have guilds, etc. You have all kinds of stuff going on, this, this almost whole of society project. So what's going on there? One view, which sort of like really thoroughly instrumentalizes it is kind of the the free market sort of view of things where you're talking about you know this factory is buying stuff from that factory and so this self-intensification process is expressed purely through the through the market logic and and that's actually the entire meaning of the thing like the, the meaning of industry is the things that we're able to buy from it the things that we get from it the meaning of the funding that's going to industry is that someone has found its products useful enough to fund it like this this very concretely instrumental vision of it the this is the utility logic narrative of industry yeah exactly and and so i i was just thinking about that and i was thinking wait a minute this is missing something so the first thing it's missing i think is the fact that this whole edifice actually can't just work like that first of all you need to have some higher level planning to make sure that those concentrations of industry, those ecosystems are being developed. This is stuff like industrial policy, right? People talk about industrial policies. You need to sort of intensify the autocatalytic processes of industry beyond just what the market does. Um, so that's that's the first thing. And the second thing is like, well, the the historical development of industry wasn't just like, you know, a bunch of shrewd governors deciding to intensify their industrial processes to to you know get more power there was also all this ideology around it all this like vision of what is it bacon or something it comes up with the new atlantis right this this vision of a scientific society where like things are done vastly better and all these problems are solved and then you know this is a whole theme through the enlightenment is this the application of science to to problems of human life and production and so on and and development of a new form of society that's making use of all of this and and being intensified in that way and becoming better through it. And so there's this there's this ideological vision in how we approach the thing or how we did approach the thing that goes beyond just like oh yeah, you know we we're we're buying some parts from the other factory and I guess there's this intensification thing happening but we don't really care about that. I don't think that's actually what's going on. So so then another thing is when people are sitting there actually building up these machines, this industry, you're sitting there as sort of a manager, there's there's often like quite a bit of idealism there. Let's talk about, for example, Elon Musk, you know, they, he's got this glorious plan of going to Mars and like mobilizing a bunch of people to do that, building rockets and so on. So there's all this ideology in it. And then you have, I think, you know, you even have ideology about best practices, like people sort of, they start to treat these things like lean manufacturing and, and, you know, management and all these things as almost like a way of life as a, as a, as a, a way that they're really parsing the world almost in a moral way, as, as like, this is the right order. This is the way we do things, right? And it's, it's got, again, this, this moral character to it. And then the fourth thing, uh, I think this is number four, is, you have the individual workers, the people actually doing the work, whether it be engineers or, or people on the shop floor or whatever, um, they take their work seriously more than just the paycheck, right? The paycheck is like, yeah, this is how I get the funding to do this. But 
but there's also the value in the work itself. You are producing something of beauty. You are breaking into some new area with new understanding. You are, you are proud of, of your ability to provide for society. You're kind of fitting yourself into this larger kind of cosmic or moral narrative of, of, you know, you are being a good and productive person. You are doing good work. You enjoy the work. You enjoy kind of conquering this problem, whatever it is. There's again, this more kind of moral logic to the thing. So I was thinking about that and, and realized that, that we have to examine that side because that, that whole side of things seems like under theorized to me. So yeah, so I wanted I wanted to start having that conversation. I mean, I've got I've got plenty more of of how I've been developing this, but Ash, I'd love to hear kind of your reaction to this. Let's try to really understand the industrial enterprise as first of all as a moral activity, but also what does it mean to be an industrial society? What is the actual transformation there? Not just in terms of instrumental intensification, but in terms of like how we're approaching the problem. Like, what does it mean to be thinking in, an, in the industrial logic? So uh, you, you were talking earlier about how in industry you develop a system of practices. You have a, a number of organizational approaches and social technologies. And I think that the way we often talk about these things, even when we're talking about things like industrial organization, we kind of separate the social organization from the actual material thing that's being produced, right? And so when we use technology in the in the day-to-day mundane sense, we really mean the material product. And we kind of separate that uh, even in policy or even in companies, honestly, from the, the, the social structure that we built up around it. So, you know, you, you, you see this the way that um, companies will kind of try and over-systematize pools of knowledge or, or, or mastery into kind of very specialized systems because they want to scale it up naturally. But, you know, you lose a lot of the original energy and innovation when you do that. I think that it is probably valuable to break down some of that separation where industrial society, when we talk about that, I think that is a term where we do think of it in a social sense. But I think even on on the more immediate level where you have an organization where people are working on a particular project, we, we get this interoperating network of social technologies and material technologies and pools of knowledge and traditions of production and mastery and craftsmanship. And all those things together are part of the technological, the industrial process. And so I, you know, with industrial policy, I think we often think about that topic, you know, a lot of discussion on leaders like, oh, you know, how can we produce semiconductors in such a way that we're no longer dependent on Taiwan or something. But the the actual structures that we have in the US, right? And and how do we change like it's not just a matter of creating, you know, more hard products, right? It's like Oh, we're, we have the service economy that's strategically bad, and we have to start producing material things again. Well, it's not quite that easy. I mean, sure, we, we could probably just figure out a set of policies where we started doing more hard production again. But the thing that's a lot more difficult is where you start developing these these deeper social technologies and ways of organizing the actual productive or industrial process. That's something that I think is kind of left out of that conversation. It's something I don't think people think about. There are people doing it here and there, 
I mean, obviously, you know, you, you go to parts of Silicon Valley, you, you know, you, you can find companies where people are doing these things. But I think that there's a lot of talk about the, the kind of policy system or whatever of, of how do we do economic regulation. And there's not actually enough emphasis on the firm as a social structure that you have to figure out how to create in a new way in order to get that stuff to work. Yeah, so so this is this is like there's two problems going on here. One is the technocratic problem, and the other is this like very low dimensional view of the thing. So the technocratic problem is you sort of like imagine it as this thing that you're not really in dialogue with. You're just kind of like imposing these rules on it, one way or the other. Sort of like you know it's some slime mold in your in your petri dish, and you're like dumping different chemicals in to see what it does. Whereas the actual situation is that. We are embedded in society. Society governance happens at all levels, and we're talking about an intensification and improvement happening at all levels. And it can't just come from like this top-down policy thing. I mean, policy obviously is helpful. There is this this formal governance of like uh, the the law and and government spending that sits above the market and so on, and that has to be in good order. But there's this whole stack of things, and it's kind of this self-reflective system at all levels that, like you say, it has to be sort of improved as kind of a living social organism that from the inside almost, right? It's, it's you are from, I guess the key, the key insight there is we are inside the thing. We're not outside the thing. You can't improve the thing from the outside. You improve it from the inside. Yeah. And you also can think of technology in a purely material term. If you, if we think that our society has reached some kind of technological stagnation, that's not just sort of a mechanical or physical engineering problem. It's also a social engineering problem. And in fact, I would say that we have to figure out the social engineering problem and how we solve it before it's even possible to do the material solution. Right. And, and so I mentioned that there's two components. The first problem was the technocratic thing sort of viewing it from the outside. But the other problem is, I think, this low dimensionality issue where I think what you're getting at is that the industrial system is not any single idea. It's not any simple process. It's a complex system. It has an enormous amount of embedded knowledge at all levels. So there's, you know, we talked about semiconductors. We talked about this on the on the um, the internal salon the other day with our with our subscribers. There's this problem of tacit knowledge. You know, you have these you have these people who know what they are doing. They have the knowledge of how to accomplish this particular industrial task. Whether you know, in in the particular case that was kind of making semiconductors. It's yeah, you can have all this machinery for photolithography and and uh, you know, pure clean rooms and and all, all the all the doping and all the stuff that they do to uh, make chips. But if you don't have that that deep intuitive knowledge and the deep experience of having just done this a ton and knowing what all the little pitfalls are, all the little ways you can screw it up, all the things that seem like they might screw it up but actually don't, uh, you know, all the black magic of like how do you make the interference patterns in the light actually work out to draw the right thing. Like there's this very deep tacit knowledge there, but but that's not just in individuals. It's also the tacit knowledge embedded in social conventions, in particular ways of working, in the in the layout of your shop, you know, in the words that we use uh, talking to each other in industry. There's just this incredible wealth of complexity that is basically embodied knowledge about how to do these production things. It's this 
this very complex system. It's like if you see one of those diagrams of, of you know, the human metabolism or something, and, you know, it, it barely fits on some enormous chart that you could put across your wall. Uh, there's just so many nodes and little interacting parts. Well, that, you know, that's a fairly complex system, but, but industry and society is actually more complex than that. There's an incredible amount of stuff there. And, and so I think you, we have to sort of understand it at, at, at that level. It's, it's this living system with an enormous amount of embodied knowledge in it. And then, you know, the question then is like, okay, well, first of all, we are this living system. Second of all, how do we nurture this thing? How do we improve it? How do we exercise it? How do we expand it to new areas? And so this is, I, I want to give like a tight definition of what I'm calling the industrial logic. I don't know how tight this is going to end up being, but, but there's this idea that I'm calling the industrial logic. And the industrial logic is, is sort of, what I'm thinking seems to be one of the key components of what's going on inside the firms that are that are very successful under the Industrial Revolution. And I think that is basically you're consciously approaching that the whole system as a purposeful machine that can be it can be examined, it can be understood, it can be planned, and it can be continuously improved at all levels. It's it's again, it's this complex machine, it's full of all this knowledge. And that can be continuously, you know, amended and improved and expanded. And, and you know, some of that is very high level management, like, okay, we're going to give orders to, to aim it this way or that way. We're going to add this new meeting process. We're going to, you know, change the hierarchy around or whatever. But a lot of it is this very, this very intangible sort of culture stuff. And I think, you know, if you look at the cutting edge of kind of management, um, they call it management science. I don't know if it's really a science. Maybe it is. But if you look at the cutting edge of that stuff, it's like they're very aware of, of this organic nature and this complex systems nature. And, and you're viewing it in, the, as, in those terms as this purposeful thing, right? Within a firm, the, the, the most obvious purpose is like, well, we're here to make money. But the money is kind of further down the line. It's like we're making money by producing this really good product or producing this product with these particular characteristics that we that we sort of strategically think are, are the most important and then and then you know then there's all this stuff about and to do that you know we have this kind of culture and here's our 14 principles of the Toyota production system and like here's here's all this ideology about lean manufacturing and so on it's like there's all this stuff going on there this this social complexity and you, and you look at that as a manager or as a participant in this system, and you're thinking, how can we improve this as a complex, purposeful machine? And, and so that, that idea of approaching social systems or socio-technical systems as complex, purposeful machines, that's what I think is sort of the core of the industrial logic. And, and note that that is, again, it's, it's, uh, I think that's basically a moral perspective. You're looking at it as, what I mean by that is just that it's about how you're viewing the world, how you're viewing the relations between values. Uh, like, why is this thing important? Why does it have to be the way it is? How can we interact with it? What are the proper ways of interacting with it? What are the improper ways of interacting with it? And and it's a perspective. It's a worldview about where this thing kind of fits into the cosmos and, and what it's about and how it works morally that provides all that guidance. And so that's why I'm saying like this industrial logic is almost this... this 
this moral thing. And so I, I wanted to explore that, but but that's let's 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 dwell on that notion of the industrial logic for a minute. But then I want to talk about like expanding that because I think I think there's this key process going on in the industrial revolution, which is the expansion of the industrial logic. I, I sort of have a quick question here, and then a bit of a longer response. So the logic you're talking about, where it's it's purposeful, it's responding to feedback in various ways. Are you thinking of that as a cybernetic logic? Yeah, I mean, cybernetics is one of the languages that has been used to kind of get at this. But I think it's 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 not even that theorized, right? It's, I mean, it's theorized actually quite a bit in some areas, but in other ways, it, it isn't, right? Um, it, but it's it's the the key thing is just like you are you like rather than seeing the thing as like there's there's other ways you could look at these systems. I guess that's an important part, right? There's other ways you could look at these things. Yeah. Well, l- let me draw on another way of looking at these. A few of the countries that always come up in these discussions are like Germany, Korea, Japan, and people will like to look at these sort of family-owned, very old companies that have existed. You, you know, I think you mentioned, was it Toyota, like Honda is one that comes up as well. In in Japan specifically, I was reading recently about the actual history of the Zaibatsu after the war. And basically what the Zaibatsu were, were these sort of industrial conglomerates and they were family owned. They were very top down. And at that period, especially, there was a big focus on this sort of internal structure, mastery and production. These were very like politically and socially relevant organizations as well, not just industrial. There were kind of, you know, attitudes of personal loyalty involved in how they operated and what ended up happening was after the war, the occupation, uh, because America at that time, obviously, you know, they just come out of the antitrust era. They were really suspicious of the Zaibatsu. And, and even the Japanese imperial government had been kind of seen them as rivals and tried to sort of nationalize parts of what they were doing. But there was first there was this external threat of communism. And so the the American occupation prioritized that Japan needed to reindustrialize really quickly so that it could be a, a well-aligned power, so, you know, so, so that it, A, would not be susceptible to communist agitation inside, but it could also kind of be a bulwark country against communism in Asia. And so they were basically willing to set aside some of those principles in order to get the industrialization going. But also, you know, I think inside the country, when you have that much, as you're saying, tacit knowledge, personal relationship wrapped up in an organization, abolishing the formal legal structure is not really the thing that gets rid of it. And so what ended up happening was th- there were Zaibatsu that were kind of dissolved or broken up, but a lot of other ones were were sort of evolved. And so in the 20th century, you got the Keiretsu system. Which is just a rebranding. <laughs> well, I, there were changes. Basically, course, the major change with leadership was that it was... They weren't as focused on family ownership as well. So you would have like shareholders come in and basically what this did was it sort of opened up top level control of the thing to, you know, competent people who could rise up through the ranks or who could enter as shareholders. And it wasn't kind of just a monopoly of a single family. But, you know, importantly, a lot of the traditions of production of knowledge, of tacit knowledge are going to survive in that structure. And that's something you see. I think in in a lot of the countries that embrace the sort of more familial or or kind of state backed roads of development, um, a lot of them just kind of had these cultural 
they placed cultural value on those sort of hand down traditions of mastery, right? I mean, in Germany, right, you 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 had the the old guild systems which had this, and then as the country industrialized, you started getting like family owned firms that played really big roles. And obviously, the the technological context and everything changes, but that focus on maintaining this sort of industrial ecosystem that's been built up and handing it down and exercising good stewardship over it and bringing in new people who also develop mastery over the thing, right? Either in their area or maybe even as like leaders of the organization. That's something that's highly valued. And it actually was strong enough that it was able to exist under multiple different regimes, right? It could exist under like imperial Japan and it could exist under sort of liberal Japan, under modern Germany. And that implies to me that this is a really powerful core of the industrial logic because all these sort of like higher level political systems, they're an iteration or two removed from the question of what powers the industrial society. And so if you have these things that converge again and again under different political brandings, I think you have a really powerful thing that you're dealing with here. Yeah. But but again, it's like it's not one simple idea, right? It's right. It's, right. The, it's the not, a, it's is not it's, one thing. It's this living ecosystem like it is it is a. It's not an abstract thing. It's a concrete thing. It's like there is this living ecosystem of firms and people and social relations and so on. And, you know, you can you can swap out the government a bunch of times. But like this this actual living ecosystem kind of uh, you don't want to screw that up. You don't mess with it too much. And if you when you do mess with it, you know, either you're leaving a lot of it intact or or improving on it or or you're you're killing it right so it's interesting that uh industrial logic here starts to sound a little bit like gardening logic right yeah no it exactly that's i think that's we what usually think of industry and nature as very opposed to each other but actually there's a very similar thing going on here no but it's it's almost even more like kind of holistic and ecological than than gardening can possibly be because because like it's like gardening, but you are the plants, right? And like, and and the plants have to do the gardening themselves. So, but but I want to I want to on on the Kairitsu Zaibatsu situation, like a particular example that has been coming up as I've been kind of thinking about this is the Toyota production system, which is this famous, um, you know, lean manufacturing in the West. If you've ever heard of that, descends from the Toyota production system. The Toyota production system is what they call kind of how Toyota does things, which is their uh, socio-technical system of what's going on, how they produce cars, how they think about producing cars, how they think about dealing with their suppliers, how they think about their people, you know, that, that, that whole kind of complex social organism. People have tried to kind of boil it down to these 14 points of, of you know, the t- quote unquote, the Toyota way. Things like, you know, thinking long term beyond beyond financial value, you know, uh, cultivating leaders, cultivating people, you know, taking the time to do things right, stopping the production line if you need to, like making sure that that the workers are empowered through like good processes and so on. Like they've got these particular 14 points, but I, I don't think I don't think you can contain any of these things in in simple kind of um principles it's it's much more it's a living system there's always going to be this sort of gap that you can't just express in a set of rules yeah and and where does this thing come from speaking of like family ownership well this this mr toyota 
Um, I think I think uh, IG Toyota in you know trained in Imperial Japan and then went to work at his cousin's uh, car factory in um, in the Toyota car factory. They they just started sort of spinning up this car factory thing. He went to work there and worked with with this um, I forget the guy's name, but but this top uh, machinist from their empire, you know, someone they already had relations with, they already knew a lot about production and so on. They'd worked with this guy. So, but him and this top machinist kind of went around to to the learning from the Americans. This is now after the war. They're learning from the Americans. They're strategizing how to build this big kind of industrial empire. And, um, you know, they look at the American manufacturing system and they're like, wow, this is impressive. They're doing way better than we are, but also this is disgustingly inefficient. We can improve on this quite a bit. And so they go back to Japan and they build this whole culture and and this production system in the Toyota plant for, for building cars and for really caring about quality and so on. And like, you know, at first they failed to break into the American markets, but by the late sixties, they were breaking into the American markets with the, the Toyota Corolla. Um, or maybe I think it was the Corolla anyway. So, so what you have though, is these two guys who basically are looking at this thing as something that they have mastery over and something that they can it's something they're embedded in but it's also something they can reflect on and improve on and and they sit down and develop all this philosophy about how to do it they really approach the thing as philosophers um but also very practically as as businessmen and as as um as as technical people and and they're building this thing up and they so what comes out the other side of that process is this toyota production system world famous you know very effective that everyone else now kind of tries to copy. But I think the key thing there is, I, I mean, first of all, it's it's like, you know, the family stayed very much in control of the thing and very much central to it, right? This Toyota family. But that that's just kind of incidental to your point. I think I think what I'm trying to illustrate with this is like, this is kind of what this industrial logic looks like in practice. And now it's it's the the thing is like they didn't so they don't they don't feel any problems with like kind of crossing class lines or or even like the the edges of the firm like they would go out and actively develop and train their suppliers and integrate them into the into the actual social and cultural components of the Toyota production system like not it's like yeah you know we have we're separate firms and like you know we operate through these contracts but also culturally we're integrated and and they would do that, right? They're basically doing vertical integration, but on a cultural level and on sort of like a, a deep alignment of practice instead of just formal ownership. Yes, yes, exactly. Right. And, then, and so this kind of gets to this point of like, wait a minute, what what's going on with the market? I'll get to that. But like basically the, the actual interface between the companies is much thicker than market relations or whatever. That's interesting. But I, I think one of the interesting things is the fact that like when this system came to America, they're able to make plants work and make workers do good work that the American companies weren't able to. Like I, I, I haven't been able to, to find many details yet, but uh, I know that I've looked that hard, but I have I just don't have the details right now. But there was this the Ford plant in Fremont, I think the one that's now the Tesla plant. 
they were having a lot of trouble. The workers were sort of unruly. There was bad relationships between the management and workers. Um, they weren't able to get a lot of production out of it. Toyota comes in, gives all the workers a tour of their Japanese plants and says, look, here's the Toyota way. Here's how we're going to do things. And just kind of initiates them into this totally different way of doing things. And where, and, and in particular, like one of the things that is central to this Toyota system is that you're really giving the workers a lot of autonomy and a lot of control over the circumstance. And you're assuming, you're saying like, okay, look, the worker wants to do good work. The worker wants to be proud of their work. They And they want to take responsibility for their work. They want to own their workspace. They, they want to be able to continuously improve their workspace and really kind of like push themselves and, and so on. Like that, this is kind of... Um, core to their ethos, right? It's not just like, oh yeah, we're a bunch of technocratic managers squeezing efficiency out of the workers. It's this collaborative process with the workers of like, look, you guys want to do good work. You're integrated into this larger socio-technical system. Interestingly, they were able to get much better results and make the plant profitable where Ford wasn't able to make the plant profitable. And um, they were able to get much better production out of it and so on. There's a lot of contrast there with um, the, the, the logic the corporate logic or the business logic of how the work that is done and also workers themselves are kind of viewed kind of in American work culture. I think, you know, broadly, like in the Anglosphere as well, even, you know, you get a lot of sort of bullshit marketing that goes on, right? About, oh, workers are our biggest asset or whatever. Our employees are our biggest asset, this kind of thing. But everyone knows it's marketing, right? And, you know, probably a big example right now is is the whole sort of Amazon unionization battle that's going on, which, you know, it, it just starts looking ridiculous in so many ways. It's kind of like, it's very obvious that the relationship here is kind of fundamentally adversarial. The decisions that both management and workers have to make are basically founded on an adversarial logic, um, you know, which is why the unionization question comes up at all. Everyone hears rumors about like, oh, it, it turns out that there's just mass surveilling going on of delivery drivers and they're kind of kept in these, you know, they're not formally part of Amazon. They're technically subcontractors. And so you don't have to enforce or, you, you know, you don't have to kind of offer normal compensation or protections. Um, oh, and, and it turns out that, uh, uh, you know, you, you see these Twitter accounts and it seems like some of them are these weird astroturfed kind of cringy attempts at talking about how great working in a warehouse is. And this is marketing mindset, right? We're going to do a PR campaign about how important and high trust the relationship with work is. And that has to be done because I think broadly speaking, American firm logic has not developed or it's lost the ability to actually create these functional collaborative organizations where the work is actually done the work is is collaborative in an actually deep sense where people are kind of being given responsibility and mastery over the domain they're working in right that's not necessarily a whole company or department like it might just be a particular practice or a particular project that's happening but it's when you can rely on people when there's actually trust where you can rely on people to do that kind of deep long engagement with what you're doing that you you can actually achieve the kind of organizations we're talking about here and i don't think we actually have those social technologies at this point 
yeah i mean i i so i was thinking about that like why why is this seem to be persistently a problem um now i think an important disclaimer on that amazon discussion is obviously amazon is among the best in terms of their ability to produce uh, a highly functional integrated socio-technical system just measured on their results right you can't discount their results and like you know maybe actually the business logic and even even you know the best kind of holistic thinking logic you know the best it's going to do is that warehouse workers are just going to you know it, it's kind of just a tough gig let's let's put it that way right but i don't want i don't want to get too far down that route it's more like well, and then ad- additionally on the Amazon point, the higher up at Amazon, my understanding is that it's actually got a lot more of this kind of like thick, thick, uh, high quality culture. Yeah, yes, yeah, that that's true. I'm talking here specifically about the kind of like groundwork logistics stuff. Yeah, the warehouse worker type. Yeah, but but okay. So so thinking about this, it's it's something that seems to be like a common, almost ideological or moral commitment in the western world at least and in western business culture something that i've seen is is this enforcement of an implicit class structure between sort of the blue collar guy who does the work the white collar manager and then like the you know the the sort of i don't know the linen collar ownership class and and like the the philosophers like there's these four functions you know there's probably many more functions but like these are four that i identified as having been sort of artificially separated in the western approach more than at least what toyota was doing and and this this distinction between the worker the manager the owner and the philosopher so let me go into a little bit what i mean there i'll tell another story so when i was um younger i wanted to go into trades and I was working with a friend of mine out in rural, sort of semi-rural area near near where I grew up. Uh, He was working on heavy machinery. Uh, He was a heavy machinery mechanic, and often he would be fixing the the machinery and the mills and and the various industrial concerns around the area. And so we would go in there and, you know, fix their machinery, and they'd be constantly abusing the stuff and just, (laughs) you know... Uh, spending a lot of money to get it fixed after they'd abused it and run it into the ground. That was our job. One of the things that, you know, we would notice is that the companies run by the white guys would have this kind of artificial distinction between like ownership or management and and the workers. And like, the, so the owner wouldn't be out there getting his hands dirty. He would be sitting in the office working on spreadsheets because he's some business guy from, from the university business program, right? And those companies would fold. And meanwhile, the ones where it's like some hardworking Sikh guy who has taken over the factory and he's out there fixing forklifts and like when he can't fix them, he calls us in. But, you know, he's out there getting his hands dirty, really very hands-on engaged with the actual machinery of the place. Um, those ones would work out the because they had lower cost structure, uh, better better cost structure because they have you know fewer of these kind of parasitical manager types, and the guy who's actually running it as a business is in there seeing exactly what the problems are hands on. Um, so it's just an interesting distinct it's an interesting case where like the it, like looking at that you see almost this class commitment 
in in the in the white guys in the western context where there was this distinction between kind of the the manager class or the owner class and the workers and and that distinction is it's like the the sort of idea of the distinction is all the thinking happens at the top and all the doing happens at the bottom and they only talk to each other through this like limited interface yeah and it's actually actively bad if you know one tries to do the other's job too much right it's and it's not it's not like it's not like they would object to the idea as much as like it just kind of doesn't occur that that's something like lines that you would cross or something. The possibility itself is sort of this yeah. foreign uh, Yeah, concept. yeah. It just like whatever it is, the way that we've been thinking about it, like doesn't make sense that way. And then, you know, same thing like shareholders are sort of supposed to be absentee, like, you know, not not these like hands-on founders. Um and and the startups seem to work startups seem to work well when you've kind of collapsed these these class distinctions at the beginning right it's like you know the owner the the executive the manager and the programmer are all the same guy right so um but i think another component here is the philosophy aspect like who feels empowered to actually think about the thing and redesign the thing uh redesign the relations not just like Oh yeah, you know, we we have this like a little corporate slogan and that little corporate slogan, but but real like cultural redesigning, like that kind of great founder stuff that we talk about. Who actually has the authority to rethink the thing and and cook up new concepts? And I think I think there's sort of like this is again, it's it's marginal, but it's on the margin. I have noticed that I see more or I I I see a noticeable way in which some of these Japanese firms will do more of that than than their American equivalents. Now, I don't know if maybe that's just anecdotal or whatever, but I think there's something here going on where like people don't feel empowered to actually think about the thing or they don't feel empowered to let anyone think about it. And so this this idea of like integrated self-governance at all levels in the system in where where like even workers can come up with new concepts for how the thing's supposed to work and you know managers are down there on the shop floor looking at how it all works and and thinking up concepts that that is something that's a little bit foreign to us so I, I just want to make a comparison here before i think i've mentioned this on one of the other shows but i i just finished reading thucydides uh peloponnesian war and you know it, it got me thinking about the the athenian voting structure, how they would staff political offices, and lottery voting uh, or lottery assignment was kind of one of the ways that they would choose people. And when I was reading about this, it's got me thinking about what kind of population do you have to have in order to do something like that? Like having a population where not only can you select someone at random, even from a subset of the population, to make you know important political decisions for the whole city, uh, but actually having everyone trust that that system is going to work and obey those orders. Imagine that on a firm level, right? How many companies have you ever come across where you know on on like an engineering team uh, or or in a department? people would trust that like even among the senior people you kind of pick people at random and assign them like temporary leadership over a project and you know it's basically going to go well that'd be like this insane level of of latent mastery over a domain for a company to have and i personally i've never seen something like this but i i think that's kind of the 
the, the the image that we should have in mind when when we think about like the most you know the most insane competent unleashing of potential of this chain of thought about how you do industrial organization. Now I'm going to push back on that a little bit because I think the idea like if everyone in some cohort is capable of doing this kind of high level job it means you actually don't have enough specialization you don't have enough domain specific knowledge or everyone is way over trained and you've wasted a whole bunch of everyone's time training them for something that they're never that they're statistically not going to be doing that much right but that's then a potential for for an insane level of expansion and growth of the thing right well it's i mean i i think the the potential for expansion is going back to what we do which is sort of this more specialized roles like the real gains come from again this like deep tacit knowledge about how to do this job or that job and yeah people move around in the structure because they have you know knowledge of how the whole system works and so on but but i think i think the key thing is people move around appropriately rather than randomly yeah, yeah, of course. The, the 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 vote by lottery thing is kind of more of a thought experiment here. I'm not sort of suggesting this as as an organizational structure, but my my point here is more to think about you I think you see this in a lot of startups, right? Where you know, roles, responsibilities will get kind of fluid especially at crunch points and people kind of have to learn how to do different things. And obviously, you know, maybe not everyone is going to be perfect at every task, but you have this basic interpersonal reliance where people trust that the other people on their team can get things done and that they can kind of fill gaps when 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 they need to be filled and I, it's basically like a very functional high trust team that's operating there as opposed to you know some stagnant company department where like everyone does their job you know they leave when they're done there's no real communication i mean we, we've, all, we've yeah. all seen so companies I think, like that i think what you're getting at is like in a healthy organization you actually do have a significant kind of fungibility on the bit of of workers between roles on the basis of they all actually kind of are pretty competent and know what's going on and they have a good idea of the overall system that they fit into and uh yeah i think that's right i'm just like like i don't want to hold up as an ideal that particular fungibility just as kind of a proxy for for competence but this this point that i kind of want to make on this point of like we seem to be limiting ourselves in what sort of lines we're willing to cross. There's this more general thing going on there with thinking about the limits of the industrial logic. Like how is the industrial logic applied in our society? We sort of apply it sometimes within firms to some extent. We apply it to shop floor, like especially when it really matters, you know, SpaceX is coming up with some new new, you know, rocket production program. They're really doing a lot of thought, uh, applying the industrial logic to really optimize their their rocket building machine, which is a mixture of humans and, and machinery. Or same thing, you know, Tesla or or you know Amazon, I'm sure lots of this happens. But but um so this happens within firms for sure. It happens to some extent at the government level in like industrial policy and so on, you start to think about the whole national economy as this purposeful system, you optimize it as such. But there's these weird kind of artificial barriers introduced in the system. Things like the boundaries between firms, the the sort of ownership relation on the the financial markets, the, the idea of private versus public, things like people's private lives versus um versus their work lives those things are like sort of 
separated in, in a way and in, in ways that I think are harmful to the private life or what is called the private life or the, the things that are that are supposed to be done by the private life, but which the private life is not logistically sufficient for, like raising kids and so on. Yeah, it, it strikes me that that those separations in a weird way, right? The, when we think about the ideal thing here, it's kind of the agreements that people came up with in the 50s, where you had a bunch of very sort of organized players here dividing up how production worked, how time was allotted. And it, it's kind of funny in a way that sort of most of those structures have either gone away or degraded and the norms have changed. But like a very specific agreement made at that moment in time is kind of our assumption of what a natural division of time looks like is disembodied. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's like, it's not that it was more natural then. It's just, I think, I think the key thing that was going on there is the industrial logic was more advanced throughout society in uh, that post-war period because, you know, obviously you have to very much apply that mobilization industrial logic during a war. You have to see the whole thing as this integrated machine that has this overarching purpose. You're managing it. You're moving parts around. Like you can't, you have no time for these ideological distinctions between like, you know, private and public and stuff like that. It's just like, no, what's going to get the job done? We need to be, you know, working on this, working on that. And so a lot of that mindset carries over through the post-war period. And so you have, I think, an advancement in the industrial logic through that period. And so the point is is less that, oh yeah, the particular deals made between, between, you know, whatever two parties in that society, in particular, what you were talking about right now is this like balance of private and, and, and work life. Um, the, the, the point is less that that's the right sort of platonic ideal of, of, of what that should be. It's more that there was actually this living process of reori- reorganizing society to be, to be stronger and healthier and more productive in, in this, and this joint optimization with, across many different uh, domains and, and across all these kind of artificial lines that have sort of subsequently reasserted themselves. But I think then we had, you know, especially in the 70s, kind of this re-entrenchment, this retreat of the industrial logic in favor of the financial logic and, and some of the class logic around the university system. Like these other things kind of pushed back on, on this integrated purposeful system view uh, towards a more customary or more more like kind of this this these entrenched hard distinctions with these ideas like you know the free market the private sphere you know public and private uh, businesses and and like the public the profit, and private sector even yeah right, right yeah and the and the profit between or, or sorry the uh, the profit motive in 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 companies. Um, so it, things are like very much reduced down to these these principles that are actually kind of lifeless. Well, and in fact, like those a lot of those principles, and this is sort of what I'm getting at, you know, a, a public versus private sector. Say, I, I think what you see in the post-war era is when those principles get introduced, they're kind of used in a very sort of functional way. Where okay, we're operating, we're doing the same project here. You know, you have all this, you know, interconnection and collaboration between uh, government and private businesses and so on. But we're go- we're going to kind of like 
allocate the authority and the responsibilities toward like this thing is going to get government sanctions, going to get its own agency. This thing here, you know, you kind of have autonomous responsibility over the thing. This is what we're calling the private sphere. But then out of that, you know, in their stagnant mode, they become these weird, like moralistically absolute things that that end up conditioning how like what we even think is possible in in how we respond right, to it. Right, right. It's like it's like you have you have your system that's this living system that's working, it's breathing. It's like, you know, the the military guys are going over to Bell Labs and being like, can you get us this calculation by the end of the day? And you know, but and then maybe somewhere else it's like, oh well, that company is handling that part of this this critical national security infrastructure and that's fine for now. And then later on, like you're saying, you have this kind of like crystallization of that into ideology. The crystallization of the current divisions into ideology or like or or a crystallization of like a stupid version of it. Like it's the stupider version. Well, and, and that's why I, I don't actually think it's useful. You know, you, you'll hear this sort of in industrial policy discussions sometimes where something along the lines of, oh, we have to rethink the relationship between government and business or something like that. Or, oh, actually, a government sector can be more productive than we've thought. And it's kind of that's not actually the right thing to focus on. The right thing to focus on is that the the actual structures the 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 I think you called it the socio technical system right that was built in that period became stagnant and so the actual thing we need to look at is how do we construct a better socio technical system that's functional and these kind of divisions of norms and responsibilities are ultimately downstream of doing that yes exactly like like the first thing the first thing is the moral transformation this is why like, coming back to this idea of like industrial progress as a moral transformation, the first thing is you transform how you're looking at the problem from, okay, like, like right now, I think the outcome of those discussions of, of, you know, we need to rethink the relationship between government and business. Someone, someone's going to take that as, oh, well, I'm operating in this like moralistic ideological mindset. So my question is, then what is the proper relationship between industry and business? And then let's go do that. But like, no, that's actually the wrong. You've 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 messed up your interpretation of of the the of what that was supposed to mean, or 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 the idealized version of what that was supposed to mean. Which is no, it's it's the fact that you're rethinking it that is the important part. The fact that you are approaching the socio technical system, the integrated industrial society as a whole system that can be optimized and moved around and managed as a holistic system that is the key transformation like the moral transformation is not from one ideology to another but from this framework of this this technocratic kind of ideological prescription to we've got this living system that we are embedded in we need to be constantly working on it um and and like all these boundaries and and divisions and concepts between it are part of that system that we need to be treating as instrumental. The whole thing needs to be instrumentalized in a holistic way towards towards like our overarching purposes and visions. And and so this is so this comes to this idea of like expanding the industrial logic. So the industrial logic has been trapped sort of within the firm. Occasionally it's escaped out to to larger areas, but but I don't think it's ever been sort of completely pervaded all of society where it's like, 
we conceive of our entire culture of how we relate to each other of you know the, the technologies we have the ideas we have the language we have the way we dress you know all that social technology that we have in those areas we see those as this holistically integrated complex system that we can work on in a unified way and constantly be improving to achieve achieve these higher purposes. Thanks for listening. We've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast. The second half is available on our Patreon. You can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.